The Eldritch Files. Talking to Michael Cox, uh, Director of Policy for the Boston Chapter of Black and Pink. Michael, thank you very much for being on my podcast. Thanks for having me. Very good to see you as Thanks. always. I feel like I see you about once a week, usually at the State House or an important hearing in Boston. So I really appreciate your work. Yeah, I appreciate you showing up to all the events. It's yeah. important to have your voice there. Well, thank you. And, and you know, clearly what's happening now is that, you know, we, we passed this major criminal justice reform law. It made some positive changes. Um, in my opinion, administration is not doing much to implement those things. So, you know, how do we apply pressure to get the Baker administration to do that? But also, there's so much more to be done. Um, you know, you recently testified for the Judiciary Committee on you know major legislation around um, everything from better data collection for LGBTQ prisoners to the failure to you know properly implement solitary confinement yeah reform, excuse me yeah so i i appreciate doing that and um i am kind of curious um you know talk to me about what your week has been like this week because uh, again I'm, I'm seeing you very active everywhere yeah yeah working against the system keeps you very busy yeah. um so this week has been great. So I work at the bail fund uh, during mm -hmm. the day. So we've been winding down there, um, just cleaning up our referral system and get, getting ready for the next month. Mm -hmm. um, but something- and, and Talk to me about the bail fund. What What is, I mean, I, I generally know, but what is the bail fund and how does it work? And... Yeah, so I work at the Massachusetts Bail Fund and essentially we will bail out anybody um, who is releasable if we pay $500 or less for their bail. Okay. So it's typically folks that are just too poor to be able to meet that threshold. Mm -hmm. And so we play that role of securing the release. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the things that are really amazing about it is uh, we have a very low forfeiture rate. Mm -hmm. So most people show up to court and it's a very high dismissal rate. Mm -hmm. So somewhere upwards of 40% of the people we post for, their cases are eventually dismissed. Okay. okay. And so it's interesting knowing that had they have not been bailed out, what is the likelihood that they would have took a plea deal just mm -hmm. to get out on these very low level charges. Um, and so it's a very compelling reason to get rid of cash bail altogether. Sure. And that was something that, you know, there's been, you know, a couple lawsuits around that. Um, there is legislation, uh, but that did not pass last mm -hmm. session. Um, so it's still a barrier. And I, I think in some prisons, upwards of 40% of, of people in a state prisoner or county jail are there because they can't afford to, to bail themselves out. Absolutely. And it's just a great example of how we criminalize poverty. Exactly. And how, how does the bail fund get, get funded? Where does the money come from? It comes from the community. Okay. It comes from people who believe in our work, who want to support it, and people who see the, um, the beauty that it creates, right? Like reconnecting mm -hmm. families back together, mm -hmm. um, getting people back in the community, getting pregnant women out of custody um, mm -hmm. so that they can give birth with their families and loved ones. Mm -hmm. And, and um, I know that you have a, a particular focus given your position of director of policy um, as you know, focusing on LGBTQ prisoners. What, what is, what are some of the details or nuances to that within prison system or your, the work that you're doing? Sure. Um, kind of a big question, but yeah, no, it's great though. <laughs> Bring it up. Um, 
So it's interesting because um, the pure volume of, of LGBT prisoners isn't that high. Okay. But when we look at it in terms of percentages, it, mm -hmm. it, we can see that there's an overrepresentation of folks. Mm -hmm. And so um, we really wanted to focus on that, right? Mm -hmm. They're black and pink. So we know that behind the bars, um, there's extreme homophobia, there's transphobia, and this sets the conditions up for a very hard time for someone to, uh, to serve a sentence behind bars. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of callous disregard um, for our needs. And sometimes there's malicious staff, too, that mm -hmm. will create a situation that's very harmful for queer prisoners. And, and if I could a ask about the, the details, so that, you know, the homophobia, transphobia, what, like, how is that actually playing out in a prison, you know? Sure. It, it happens on all levels. So mm -hmm. it happens on an administrative policy level mm -hmm. where we see um, regulations that would target LGBT prisoners. Mm -hmm. For example, there's one... Um, there's an institutional infraction for intimate contact between mm -hmm. prisoners. Mm -hmm. And so this is um, very vaguely described and it could be something as innocuous as you and I's legs touching. Mm -hmm. It could be me patting your head, me rubbing your back, mm -hmm. um, me giving you a hug goodbye. Mm -hmm. And that is justification um, to put us in solitary confinement. Mm -hmm. So an infraction like that can carry up to, I believe it's 14 days in solitary confinement. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to imagine that a rule like that could be created for anyone other than um, mm -hmm. an LGBT person. Right, and therefore disproportionately uh, punishes LGBTQ prisoner. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And whether it's weaponized against us or not, just the creation of it alone mm -hmm. is, shows an administrative failure to care for LGBT people. And worse mm -hmm. than that, it's like weaponizing uh, regulations against us. Sure. And then the 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 day by day homophobia transphobia. I mean, I, I can imagine, but what 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 is? It? I mean, it's just the slurs and mistreatment. Yeah, I think slurs are probably the number one thing that causes the most distress. Uh -huh. um, as a member of the special commission on the health and safety of LGBTQI prisoners, mm -hmm. we've been able to visit um, facilities. We've been able to talk with incarcerated persons, um, and that was their number one complaint. Is mm. The guard calls me a slur, and there's no accountability. Mm -hmm. If mm -hmm. I go file a grievance, there's going to be retribution against me. Mm -hmm. That's the number one concern. And number two is it's not going to amount to anything because it's an incarcerated person's word against mm -hmm. the guard. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. within the system, we will always lose mm -hmm. um, when mm -hmm. it's just those two things mm -hmm. uh, against one another. And if, if I could ask a question about the complaint, I mean, so a, a complaint, you know, uh, so, you know, a, a correction officer, uh, you know, uh, uses a slur towards a prisoner um, and a complaint is filed and, and that's just immediately rejected, reviewed and never sees the light of day. What was the typical? Sure. So, um, you know, we have a constitutional right to redress our grievances. Mm -hmm. And so they have this grievance process. Mm -hmm. um, so we're able to file a complaint, submit it in the institutional mail. Um, I filed many, I would say probably a third of them were like lost. Mm -hmm. And then the ones yeah. that were reviewed, um, they, I think they were all denied, mm -hmm. always denied. Um, but you get a chance to state your claim. You have the opportunity to make a paper trail. Mm -hmm. 
um, which can be helpful down the road if you're mm. looking to file a lawsuit as an incarcerated person. Mm -hmm. um, it's something that the courts depend on and you need to actually exhaust that administrative uh, grievance procedure in order to get to the courts. Mm -hmm. um, but unfortunately what happens is it's another guard that reviews the grievance. Mm -hmm. And so as we know in law enforcement, one um, law enforcement officer is often reluctant to reprimand another law enforcement officer. And so these things usually do go nowhere for that reason. Okay. Okay. So that's a typical process. Therefore, grievances are not being addressed. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it also places that, us at risk because the grievance officer will go and speak with that guard and say, hey, did you call Mike a name? Mm -hmm. And now that yeah. guard knows. Right. And what usually won't happen is that guard will not mess with me. He will have his friends actually target me instead. Okay. So kind of similar to tailgating, right? If you follow anyone long enough, they're bound to break a, a rule. Yeah. Um, and so in those ways, we will get caught up. And on paper, it looks decent, right? It looks mm -hmm. like a good um, disciplinary report, right? You mm -hmm. caught Michael Cox doing X, Y, and Z, mm -hmm. but the reasons for it um, go a little deeper. Okay. And and that's something, as someone that, you know, did spend some time in, in prison, that's something that you experienced? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I filed grievances on a lot of people, mostly the um, what's called the IPS. Mm -hmm. It's the Inner Perimeter Security, and they're mm -hmm. kind of the investigative team. Okay. And uh, when I arrived at NCI Gardner, um, they were constantly calling me up there, um, accusing me of sexual improprieties, mm -hmm. and really trying to figure out why I was spending time with other LGBT people. Mm -hmm. But the truth is I was just trying to find community. I was trying sure. to find friends. I was very green to the system. So of course I would gravitate to people in my community. Sure, sure. But they couldn't fathom why I would hang out with a trans woman. They, they um, insinuated that she was a sexual predator in some way, mm -hmm. which is a very common myth of trans people. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And she was nothing but benevolent to me. She taught me the ropes. Mm -hmm. um, she taught me how to protect myself. Mm -hmm. And so for all those reasons, I'm actually very grateful for that friendship. But the system couldn't figure out why I would want to do that for some reason other than maybe sex or maybe I was being victimized. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the case at all. Mm -hmm. um, it was just a genuine friendship forming. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, and, and if I may ask dur during your time, I mean, what was, I sort of have a picture, but what was the, the culture like? What was the experience like? Um, you know, educational programs, et cetera. What, what was that like? So the culture is very hyper-masculine mm -hmm. on both sides. So yep. you have the prison code, mm -hmm. which is the kind of the code that incarcerated people follow. Mm -hmm. yep. And then you have sort of the blue code, yep. right, um, that the guards follow. Um, so each side kind of doesn't like one another. Mm -hmm. um, there's always that tension, the captor mm -hmm. and the captive. Mm -hmm. And then um, the guards would pick out certain kinds of people. So if you were convicted of a sex offense, the guards were very likely to target you. Um, if you were LGBT, mm -hmm. the guards were likely to target you. Mm -hmm. Slurs, um, denials, comments under their breath. Mm -hmm. uh, it just creates a very hostile environment on top of the already like inherent power dynamics. Mm -hmm. Going up to ask for a roll of toilet paper when you've run out of it, knowing that this guard has made comments. Mm -hmm. right? It can make for a very awful situation. And sure. when they tell you no, all you can wonder is like, oh, it's because I'm gay. Yeah. But they mm -hmm. gave the guy next to me a roll of toilet paper two minutes ago. Right, right. Uh, and so you mm -hmm. just know, like, your existence isn't welcome here. Mm -hmm. um, and it just creates, like, a, a chronic kind of anxiety. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But above and beyond that, there were some education programs in the system. Okay. Um, they were in existence. But the problem is that there's just... On paper. Just, yeah, yeah, exactly. On paper, they're there. And they really do exist. Um, some of mm -hmm. them exist mm -hmm. and are active. But the problem is that there's not enough capacity to serve the people who want to engage. Mm -hmm. So it's not mm -hmm. that we want to all sit on our bunks and watch TV all day. We don't. We want to be busy. We want to have meaningful lives. Yeah. But when the class is canceled or when the class can only hold 10 people, yeah. you know, it it leaves the rest of us doing nothing with the impression sure. there are no programs. Sure. And did you feel that any, did you participate in programs? Yeah, I signed up for as many programs as I could. Mm -hmm. um, I've always been a curious person, so mm -hmm. learning has always kind of been um, my thing. Um, I got into a college program that was mm -hmm. very um, temporary on mm -hmm. a grant basis, and that was really meaningful for me. Mm -hmm. um, I had done a lot of crystal meth before I went to uh, prison, mm -hmm. and so I was curious, like, had all my brain cells burnt out, um, mm -hmm. and being able to engage in those classes showed me that they weren't. Okay. You know, if I used my brain, I was actually getting, like, smarter, and I was getting, okay. becoming a better writer, more articulate. And so it was great practice for me to kind of like build up my confidence again. Okay. Um, and so that actually helped me um, want to go to school and finish my studies when I got out. Okay. And you, and you have a, a bachelor's and a master's, correct? I have an associate's and a bachelor's. Okay. Yep. And so do you, do you feel like the programs at MCA Gardner actually helped you for, for uh, once you were released? I do feel that way. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they showed me I wanted to continue that work outside. But unfortunately, the grant monies had run out, and so they were only able to offer us, I think, three classes. Okay. And then one professor said that, from Mount Wachusett Community College, said that he would continue teaching for free. He made arrangements for the, the college to mm -hmm. uh, continue giving us credits. Mm -hmm. um, but unfortunately, uh, the guards could not fathom why somebody would want to come in and do something like that for free. Mm -hmm. Um, they assumed, I think, worse intentions in him. Mm. And so what other guards had told me was that they actually ran him out of the jail mm -hmm. um, through the search process. Okay. They were able to weaponize that search process against him mm -hmm. um, and make it so oppressive that he didn't want to come back again and go through that process. Mm -hmm. So he ended up giving us all A's for that class, um, and he didn't come back. And I actually circled around with him when I got mm -hmm. out, and he confirmed that that was true. Yeah, and uh, and he he apologized for not being able to finish it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's really sad, and it it shows I think this tension between guards and prisoners, and like kind of like reformist um, and like rehabilitative mm -hmm. movements. Yeah, and then the guards like sabotaging that, not yeah. wanting that to happen. And it sounds like a a bit of a na naive question, but I mean, why why do you think the guards more often than not have that view? Like, what? How does that happen? Uh, there's kind of two reasons that I play with. The first one is, um, you know, if there's not bo if there aren't bodies in that jail, then that um, challenges mm -hmm. their job security, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so if there's no one to guard, well, there <laughs> might not be a guard. Yep. Uh, and then the other reason was kind of what I was alluding to it a moment ago, which is they saw him as a security threat. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Whether, you know, that holds water or not, I'm not sure. Yeah. Do you think they sincerely felt that way? No. Okay. No, yeah. that's what I was told. Um, that that's why, but it just feels like they—it's not in their interest to have rehabilitative programs because people aren't coming back in. 
then they can't make arguments for additional guards to be hired, which would mm-hmm. mean that their their union dues are greater, right? And so mm-hmm. the the pack the union is able to um, to expend more, whether it's political contributions here in the state house mm-hmm. um, or other areas that they want to um, emphasize for themselves. Yeah, and I will say I know you've highlighted that about political contributions to elected officials, and you know I don't accept those donations, but I, I know some legislators do so. Yeah, uh, and I was actually really relieved to see how many folks didn't accept them. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a few surprises, but more mm-hmm. or less, it was people I would have expected who have been extremely hostile to uh, criminal justice reform. Mm-hmm. And and so in in your interaction with legislators, especially you know whether the commissions you're on or speaking out at, at commissions, and you know recently uh, saw you at the Restrictive Housing uh, Oversight Commission is. How, how do you feel legislators in general are, are, are doing as far as responsiveness? And I'll, I'll couch that in terms that, you know, I'll get letters from prisoners pretty much every week. And part of the challenge is, um, you know, uh, reading a 10 to sometimes 15 page mm-hmm. letter, having the staff look into it. If I call the Department of Corrections, you know, is it really going to be productive conversation and so how can I be as much of an advocate for you know those whether those incarcerated or those out who are who are advocating it's hard yeah I get yeah. I get similar letters <laughs> yeah I was gonna actually. say yeah <laughs> um, it's really hard when all the information isn't there that I wish mm-hmm. was there or yep you know it's how do you chase this down right uh, right it can be really hard it can be really frustrating especially around things that are easily refutable mm-hmm. and there's no evidence involved you easily fall into a he said she said yeah. yeah and i can say that sometimes doing that act advocacy work for someone can work against that person mm-hmm. the incarcerated person sure right sure. so now they've been elevated on the radar in the, yep. within the institution in some way they've gotten a legislator to call right yep. now everybody's upset Um, you got Mike to call, right? Or maybe there's a phone zap that we do in the community where we we encourage people in the community to call into a facility to advocate in volume. Okay. Um, and sometimes I can work against that person and next thing we know they're in solitary confinement. Yeah. And you have to wonder, did our work do good? Yeah. Or did we harm somebody? And that's sort of something that was on my mind, you know, in September I went to MCI Cedar Junction, formerly Walpole. Um, and, you know, I had individual meetings with prisoners, but absolutely thinking about, you know, um, you know, were they going to get treated a different way once mm-hmm. I left the facility? Yeah, it's something that weighs on all of us. Um, mm-hmm. So usually we like to get their consent to yep. advocate. It sounds like mm-hmm. they're writing to you. It's sort mm-hmm. of inherent that they'd like you to take action. Right, right. Um, yeah, but I usually like to follow up and ask, what would you like me to do with this information if it's right. unclear? Because mm-hmm. I can go elevate it. Right, um, right. If it's really what you want, or are you just reporting to me, trying to make sure it was like information coming to Black and Pink about what's going on inside? Sure, sure. Yeah. And how how about uh, whether the commission you're on or just attending commission hearings? What is your honest assessment so far? <laughs> so there's two commissions that I've been involved in. The yep. first one uh, is the Restrictive Housing Oversight Committee, and I just attend that as a member of the public. Yep. Um, I think that structurally they're off to a good start. Okay. okay. It seems like um, they're running efficiently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They are listening to people, um, community mm-hmm. advocates that are on their commission. And so that's a relief. Um, they've yet to put in any work. 
mm-hmm. or report out anything. Yeah. Uh, and so my eyes are really on that ball. Sure, sure, um, yeah. That right, the proof is in the pudding on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been a little hostile towards the public during public comments, either shutting it down early mm-hmm. or not having a public comment period at all, despite the attorney general's um, guidance on the open meeting law that mm-hmm. there be one. Yep. So that's a little disappointing. Um, yeah, sometimes when I, I got up at the last meeting and I spoke about how LGBT people are um, disproportionately impacted by certain mm-hmm. regulations, mm-hmm. consensual sex, intimate contact. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was looking over at someone who represents the DOC and I just, uh, you know, I kind of started to fall apart a little bit on the inside. I almost yeah. thought he was rolling his eyes at me. Yeah. Um, and it's someone who's publicly commented on um, the articles mm-hmm. that have been published around my work. Mm-hmm. And so it can often feel like this um, this tension there yeah, and just kind of like speaks to the homophobia that I continue to feel even as I'm not under their custody right, and right. just doing advocacy work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it makes me wonder what's really going on when nobody's watching sure. behind the wall. Yep. The other commission that I'm on, I'm a member of, is a special commission on the health and safety of LGBTQI prisoners. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that has... Um, has been a labor of love for me. Yep, yeah. Um, but unfortunately, it's been a lot of educating the DOC on the people that that they incarcerate. Sure, um, sure. Whether it's HIV rates, um, having to explain over and over that just basic data that mm-hmm, a simple mm-hmm. Google search will tell you, and I've done presentations on it, and yeah. it they still don't understand what I'm mm-hmm. talking about. Mm-hmm. And so it's deeply frustrating to put all this effort into educating them and then for it to, to not stick. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. But some of the things that we are working on, and we recently passed some recommendations, mm-hmm. are to allow um, PrEP, uh, which is pre-exposure uh, prophylaxis, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. people who are at risk of contracting HIV while they are in custody. Okay. And so in the community here, that's freely available. DPH okay. covers that for free. And so um, someone like me would get a prescription for PrEP Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And then that would protect against HIV okay. um, from contracting it in the first place. Okay. And so um, having this be a recommendation is a little bit more radical than it probably sounds mm-hmm. uh, within the realm of corrections <laughs> because it's forcing the DOC to reckon with the fact that people do have consensual sex in custody, mm-hmm. uh, even though it is against the rules. Um, but we're playing in this gray area where we know it's happening. It's always happened. Mm-hmm. Um but we feel that if it is going to happen, people should have tools um, to prevent against HIV contraction. Sure. sure. And, and so it is a step in the right direction. And I'm really glad that we've unanimously agreed on that. That's great. That's yeah. great. I, I will say, I mean, and this is something um, you know I've observed is so within sort of the LGBTQ civil rights movement, if you will. You know, so when I was first elected is when the Supreme Judicial Court ruled that, you know, gay marriage was, was legal in the law of the Commonwealth. Um, and since then, you know, we've passed, you know, transgender rights protections, um, you know, equal protection in terms of you know, healthcare services. But I do remember um, one of your predecessors with Black and Pink talking to him about, you know, some of the mainstream uh, gay and lesbian civil rights groups. And he would say, um, oh, they, they won't get involved in this issue. They, they you know, it's it's it will uh, quote unquote hurt the cause for, you know, gay marriage or, uh, you know, uh, other legal rights for LGBTQ people if we bring in LGBTQ prisoners. 
So, so I'm, I'm curious if that has changed at all. Do you think that's getting better? Because that was something that was deeply alarming to me when I first became a legislator. Well, I'll echo that. It's, it's been deeply disheartening for me yeah. being an advocate, saying those are our people in prisons yeah. and they're suffering. Um, yep. And just kind of hearing crickets. Yeah. Um, but things have come a little further um, in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I know Fenway is working on a report on yes. best practices for mm-hmm. LGBTQI prisoners. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully that'll be an education tool yep. um, for administrators. Um, glad. Mm-hmm. gay and lesbian advocates and defenders. They recently litigated a case with Prisoners Legal Services mm-hmm. um, to get a trans woman transferred from a male facility to a female facility. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so we do see some organizations being willing to uh, throw their hat in the ring mm-hmm. uh, and work on these issues. Mm-hmm. But to your earlier point, it is hard. Yeah. But the truth is uh, different than that, right? Yes, sure. some people mm-hmm. do look like, their families look like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But for the homeless kid, who was kicked out of the house for being yeah. LGBT, yeah. who had to go to the streets, engage in survival economies, either sex work um, or drug sales, mm-hmm. right? You very mm-hmm. quickly end up in prison mm-hmm. uh, when you go down that road. Sure. But the community doesn't really want to talk about that as much. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Youth is a little easier to talk about. Sure, yeah. Um, you know, that's our mm-hmm. future. Mm-hmm. But um, when those youth age into adulthood, all of a sudden mm-hmm. nobody wants to talk about the crystal meth. Right, because okay, it hurts yeah. our image when mm-hmm. we say we're just like everyone else, we just want equal rights. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the community is starting to make headway a little bit, mm-hmm. and I'm really happy to see other folks on board with that, like again, Fenway and Glad. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope that they can be examples for other organizations like Mass Equality who really just focus on equality. Mm-hmm. Um, but the time's come for us to talk about equity, and sure. we all want seats at the table, we need to look at the most marginalized and be lifting up those folks to Mm -hmm. end all boats rise when that happens. Sure, exactly. And I think sometimes we miss the bigger picture on that one. Sure. And do you you feel that, um, I mean, what would you like legislators to do, you know, more of, or how can we be more allies to addressing these inequities? Well, I think that most legislators can just follow your lead on this. Mm -hmm. And I'll point out a few things. Um, The first one is just listen to us when we talk. Sure. We're experts. Um, we've lived through it, and through that mm-hmm. lived experience, uh, we have a wealth of knowledge that you can't learn in school, mm-hmm. or it take you a long time to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next thing I would say is to create platforms for mm-hmm. us to share those those lived experiences and mm-hmm. our expert advice. So it's something that you've done a lot on the Criminal Justice Reform Caucus. Sure, yeah. Yep. Which mm-hmm. is really just hosting us, mm-hmm. um, giving us a space, allowing it to happen, um, introducing us, I think, gives it all some air of legitimacy um, that unfortunately we still have to fight for as formerly incarcerated people. Mm-hmm. And so, by giving us those spaces to share our stories with the public, um, we can continue the hard work that we're all doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how about the the Baker Polito administration? What what would you like to see changes in the administration? I'd like to see the whole administration change. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like we really need a, a democratic uh, governor. Yeah. In the, in that corner office, um, time and again, we've just seen him siding with law enforcement and people, really mm-hmm. not looking at the issues, not looking at the data. So, if you're only going to go on emotion driven mm-hmm. um, or like rhetoric mm-hmm. um, to rile up your base, I think that that's poor um, 
policy making, mm-hmm. right? It certainly doesn't seem to be fact based or you know the uh, management based as Governor Baker often tells himself. You know, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it just speaks for itself, mm-hmm. and it shows that we clearly chose the wrong governor. Um, but unfortunately, most of the people thought that that's who they wanted. Mm-hmm. But I hope that more and more um, people get to see that criminal justice issues um, deserve to be elevated. They should be in the next election conversation. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really curious to see what will come out of that. And I think I think also as much as, you know, Governor Baker, obviously Republican, um, you know, has more often not sided with um, sort of authoritarian measures in the DOC, is I think it's also on the shoulders of Democrats to to have policies to do the outreach. Um, I think sometimes there's an assumption, well, I'm a Democrat, so therefore, you know, the gay community must vote for me or the black community or Latino, but but no, actually, what are we going to do to help address the concerns of the different communities? Absolutely. And I think that's that's coming to head a little bit in the presidential debate as yes, well. It is. Yeah. Which is um, you know, we have a platform of several good candidates. Mm-hmm. But when we really look at their track record, we say, but what did you really do for the right. black community? What did you do for the Latino, the LGBT community, where mm-hmm. you've all held offices prior? And we could see someone like some mm-hmm. examples where they just, <laughs> you know, they've actually hurt their own people in some ways. Um, yeah. And so that, that's coming to reckon now. And they're not they're not up in the polls, I think, for a lot of those reasons. Yeah. And I, w- I was speaking with. Uh, Darrell Jones, and, you know, one of the things he recounted is that, and this is someone that was, you know, wrongfully convicted, spent 32 years in prison, and then he had told me, which I didn't know, that he was caught up in the 1990s on the Bill Clinton um, federal crime law, that it made him harder for him to file an appeal. So here's an innocent man that had one more barrier um, from him getting out of prison, and again, this was done by Democratic administration. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. But a little more backstory to that is that we were coming off the backs of a Republican president mm-hmm. at the time. Yep, yep. Who in part one through tough on crime measures. Absolutely. And so yeah. the Democrats in that in his election sort of stole some of that, wanted to steal some of those centrists back. Right. Um, but yeah, shame on them. Mm-hmm. Because they, they locked up a lot of black and brown bodies um, mm-hmm. during the Clinton administration. They mm-hmm. They came out with awful rhetoric and imagery around um, super predators mm-hmm. um, that really did the so many communities a disservice um, that, that we still feel to this day. They took away Pell Grants in that bill. Yeah, that was They took away well. the right to habeas yeah. corpus or restricted that right in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, which maybe Tara mm-hmm. was talking about, mm-hmm. uh, and so many others that really sabotaged us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And as I was talking earlier about having to exhaust an administrative remedy, before you could even file a civil rights claim as an incarcerated person. Um, that came through in the Prison Litigation Reform Act that I believe mm-hmm. Clinton also signed. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so many bad things came out of that Democratic administration. So we need yeah. to hold all parties accountable. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm curious, um, so you, you know, in some of your testimony, you talked about being in solitary. And uh, if you're comfortable with it, you know, talk to me about what that experience is like. Sure. So I went to prison at a young age of 22. Mm-hmm. So I spent two years pre-trial awaiting um, the adjudication of my case. Mm-hmm. And during that time, I went to four different county facilities. Mm-hmm. And the reason I got moved was because I had a roommate. Mm-hmm. And um, 
he was getting a little friendly, a little too friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, he started touching my legs, and mm-hmm. um, then it, every night it started to move up a little higher, a little higher, my inner thighs. Mm-hmm. And so being very green to the system, mm-hmm. um, I, uh, I went to the guard and said, hey, I made arrangements with a friend. He said I could move in a cell with him. Yeah. Um, so I was trying to handle it diplomatically, but um, they just kept pressing me, why, why, why? And so I finally told them, um, and the next thing I know, I was surrounded by six guards. I was asked to put on handcuffs. I was marched to solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. And I spent four weeks there. They shipped me out to another institution where I spent another couple of weeks in solitary mm-hmm. confinement. And that really taught me um, mm-hmm. right from the get-go that these people aren't here to help me. They're not mm-hmm. here to protect me. No one ever asked me what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and they put me through this torture, right, where I'm sitting for 45 days in solitary confinement, having done nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the institutions are just not equipped to deal with us. They're not mm-hmm. safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another example is when I was at Gardner State Prison. I gave a, a hug goodbye to my friend in the open yard. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a cordial hug. Mm-hmm. And again, the next thing I know, I'm surrounded by all these guards. Um, this lieutenant uh, who's known to be homophobe. Mm-hmm. Um, was kind of just gloating there, and he was, he was calling me the kid's boyfriend. He was not my boyfriend; he was my friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were both put in solitary confinement for that. And so it's just incident after incident comes up where you know you're not welcome. Mm-hmm. All of these people have stood. All these other guards have stood by and allowed it to happen. Mm-hmm. There's been no voice of reason. Like, actually, they're yeah. friends, or I used right. to be his block officer. I know they're just friends. Right. Um, no one's just going to stick up for sort of the blue collar, the blue collar silence. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. They co-sign each other's stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's these other ways that we end up in solitary confinement too. For example, um, I was downstairs showering uh, one day, and this guy came up and he grabbed me. He grabbed mm-hmm. me in a personal area, and I had like 0.22 seconds to respond. And uh, whether I did the right thing, I don't know, but I ended up punching him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a really big guy. I was scared. I was in the basement area. It's kind of not monitored, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't know where this is going. But mm-hmm. um, so, anyways, so I punched him and uh, he beat the pulp out of me. He gave me a black eye, mm-hmm. um, chipped my tooth, mm-hmm. and I didn't say anything. Yeah. When the guard saw the mark on me, what happened? I said I fell um, because I already learned my lesson of what happens when you report yeah. uh, right. sexual violence. I didn't want to go to the hole again. For Right. I'd rather take a ticket for a fight. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. And I was just hoping that they wouldn't be able to find him, mm-hmm. right? Because you can't get a ticket for a fight if they don't know who you fought with. Mm-hmm. So I was hoping that would play out, but it's not how it played out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was another example of something you wouldn't necessarily attribute to being LGBT if you just looked at my my mm-hmm. record. Yeah. You say, oh, a ticket for a fight. Mm-hmm. Actually, that was very much related to my queerness. Okay. Okay. And another time. Um, they tried to relocate me to another housing unit, mm-hmm. and I knew someone in there who had been pursuing me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I couldn't prove it, you know, like mm-hmm. beyond a reasonable doubt, but yeah, I'm a human being, and I know when someone's ogling me, um, sure. you pick the vibes up, and I knew this person um, was in for similar offenses, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so I knew that wouldn't be a safe space for me, especially as we talked about showering, mm-hmm. um, getting naked, sleeping. Sure. It's not, it was not something that I was going to involve myself in. 
And so again, I just refused the housing move. Um, and I went to solitary confinement for that. That was only a couple days, but it was a lot better than what would have happened had I have gone to the guard and said, these are my concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have likely have been put in solitary confinement for a lot longer. Um, the other person would have been put in solitary confinement, possibly. Mm-hmm. I could have been shipped out of the institution and lost all of my friends, which is another safety risk for LGBT oh, yeah. prisoners. Oh, right, right. Yeah, no one wants to be the new kid on the block. Right. Um, so it's this very complex culture that we have to navigate, that anybody has to navigate. Sure. But then for an LGBT prisoner, there's all these Much other harder. extra. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's overwhelming. Yeah. And and what is it like to be, you know, I, I tried to be placed in solitary at Susan Baranowski two years ago, and the DUC refused to allow me. I was going to stay for 24 hours. They refused to allow me because they said it wasn't safe. So, um, and, and maybe I'll, I'll try again, but, um, but what, I mean, what is solitary confinement like? And sorry to ask that. Yeah. But I'm just, no, I'm just, no, that's okay. Yeah. Um, it's a great question. So solitary confinement is this weird thing that happens. So usually something has come to climax. Mm-hmm. So, and then you are strip searched, you're handcuffed, you're shackled, mm-hmm. you're marched in the cell. And so there's an immediate like sense of relief, mm-hmm. like oh thank God I got the cuffs off me, I have my dignity back, right? I'm fully clothed now. Mm-hmm. Um, You're in the cell. Yeah. I'm in the yeah, cell. Yeah. There's this kind of sense of relief of like wow, this, like I was describing, all this processing, always um, assessing a situation for my mm-hmm. survivalhood, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. where that can actually shut down a little bit in solitary confinement, right? Mm-hmm. Where actually I'm alone now. I know that I'm I'm sort of safe from other people in here. Yeah. And so I think some people find relief mm-hmm. being placed in solitary. Um, but whatever relief I felt was short-lived mm-hmm. uh, because the time starts to get a little messy. You're not really sure what time it is. Um, yeah. You're bored out of your mind. I was living in fantasy land at some points. Um, how, how quickly did that happen that you, you were having you know, delusions or just you know, being in fantasy, fantasy land, as you said? It happens pretty quick. Um, yeah. You start to just daydream and check out because there's nothing else to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, it happens pretty quick. And then it was also super agonizing some of the points I went to solitary because I didn't know when I was getting out. Yeah. It, you don't go in all the time and they say, oh, you're going to do 10 days. So you kind of know what's yeah. going on. Um, but like for the first example I gave about reporting sexual violence and spending mm-hmm. 45 days in the whole... At no point did anyone mm-hmm. ever tell me when I would be released. Nobody mm-hmm. told me what was going on, what would go on, what the process would be like. And so I think um, being placed in solitary under those conditions can be like a living purgatory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where you're always in limbo, you're not really sure what's going on. And so your mind's constantly wondering mm-hmm. um, what will happen to me. And living under that kind of duress and stress um, mm-hmm. isn't good for you. And it wasn't good for my mental health. I mm-hmm. already suffered from like anxiety and I had a mm-hmm. lot of substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of it combined, just I start to unravel. Mm-hmm. And so I started to ask the nurse for um, mental health medications, just hoping she would give me something to dull me out. Sure, sure, um, yeah. Because I couldn't continue operating at that level um, for that long. Mm-hmm. And it's really sad. And those stories are kind of innocuous in some ways compared to what other people go through. I heard people screaming bloody murder in mm-hmm. their cells, mm-hmm. um, screaming for help, 
Mm-hmm. There would be sometimes there would be a medic rush to somebody's cell, and mm-hmm. I didn't really know what was going on, but yeah. you could only imagine mm-hmm. um, what it would take to get that kind of response from the institution. Mm-hmm. And while you're in solitary, any access to education programs, materials? No, I didn't get anything at any of the points I was in solitary. Um, I think once a therapist came around and gave me a word puzzle, <laughs> which, um, you know, I did in like two minutes. That, that sounds fairly insulting, yeah. Yeah, it was insulting. <laughs> like, I appreciated the gesture because it, it stuck out for the normal day-to-day operations of the facility. But still, um, that's not going to cut it for me. Um, yeah. You know, I need like meaningful activities, sustained activities. Yeah. And not just um, solo activities, right? I need to, like, interact with humans. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, when I go to, you know, when I went to MC Cedar Junction, you know, just, just myself and obviously interacting with people a fair amount, but just being there for 10 hours, you know, I mean, it's just deeply isolating. Yeah. It is. And it's it sucks like a piece of your spirit away. Mm-hmm. And as we hear about, you know, guards with high rates of suicide, I'm not surprised. Mm-hmm. It's not surprising at all because you really have to dehumanize another to be able to cuff them, strip them, yep. put them in an isolated cell for extended periods of time to ignore their pleas for help, mm-hmm. sometimes cries for help, um, screams for help, to be able to dissociate yourself from that. It mm-hmm. has to take a toll on your own spirit. Mm-hmm. And so when we see that they have high rates of suicide, alcoholism, domestic violence, mm-hmm. we can see maybe how that, that impacts them as well. It's, sure. it's the system that kills mm-hmm. everybody that goes through it. Sure. Whether it's just a little piece of you or bigger things. Like sure. um, I know there was a suicide recently this week at Shirley Medium. There was, yeah. And, and other, what is this with, we've been like dealing with that and, and other incidents. It's been really uh, triggering for me being formerly incarcerated myself yep. mm-hmm. and trying to find out there's no clear information channels. So mm-hmm. someone would find a little piece and we'd be on an email chain. And so it's been this slow process of discovery. Mm-hmm. But we finally come to the point uh, where we can conclude that um, who this person was, that this person died of hanging. This mm-hmm. person died in solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. Um, this person was openly gay. Mm-hmm. And so, again and again, we can see how intersectional this issue is, where we mm-hmm. see someone in solitary um, who's openly gay, and they're mm-hmm. dying. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just, um, it's an indictment against the entire system, yeah. that they're not equipped to deal with human beings, yep. and that when humans are placed in isolation, they deteriorate so quickly. It, exactly. All the studies show that, yeah. And Massachusetts is, you know, one of one of the worst in the country on that, yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it's no surprising that the Department of Justice is investigating mm-hmm. um, the Massachusetts Department of Corrections for their solitary practices. Mm-hmm. And so I really hope that the Department of Justice is going to be focusing on um, the different ways that this plays out, including um, mm-hmm. LGBT people who are disproportionately mm-hmm. represented in solitary confinement. Absolutely. Absolutely. I hope that they're going to end up with a consent decree, but mm-hmm. maybe it'll just be a findings report. Yeah, it'd be fascinating if the Trump administration does a consent decree with Commonwealth of Massachusetts, so we'll see. That would be, I could picture it in some I could ways, too. you know, yeah. there'd be a Republican administration with a blue state. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I also hear that some of the, the state attorney general's offices, so like the U.S. attorney general's office for Mass has yeah. like some independent leeway. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's actually done some good measures that I support, yeah. 
Yeah, so mm-hmm. hopefully we can see some of that. Yeah. And it's unfortunate that our own attorney general isn't able to really um, spearhead a lot of that work because mm-hmm. of their kind of um, relationship, right? They would represent the Department of Corrections right, in a lawsuit. Right. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're in this weird spot where I'm sure the attorney general's office would want to do mm-hmm. that. And I know that they get many reports. Sure. But they're in this weird spot where it'd be a conflict of interest for them to prosecute their client. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael, uh, thank you so much for talking with me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, I just so admire your courage and leadership and knowledge and persistence to advocate for LGBTQ prisoners for criminal justice reform. And uh, it's an honor to always see you and to have you on the show. Thanks, Senator. Yeah. The Eldridge Files. 